Linogen versus the ants. Alas, they alter their course, and there's no reason why they should. They reach our plantation in two days, at the latest. Linogen sucked placidly at a cigar about the size of a corn cob, and for a few seconds, gazed without answering at the agitated district commissioner. Then he took the cigar from his lips and leaned slightly forward with his bristling gray hair, bulky nose, and lucid eyes. He had the look of an aging and shabby eagle. It's decent of you, he murmured, paddling all this way just to give me the tip. But you're pulling my leg, of course, when you say I must do a bunk. Why, even a herd of dinosaurs couldn't drive me from this plantation of mine. The Brazilian official threw up lean and lanky arms and clawed the air with wildly distended fingers. Leiningen! He shouted. You're insane! They're not creatures you can fight! They're elemental and an act of God! Ten miles long, two miles wide! Ants! Nothing but ants! And every single one of them a fiend from hell! Before you can speak three times, they'll eat a full-grown buffalo to their bones! I tell you, if you don't clear out at once, there'll be nothing left of you but a skeleton picked as clean as your own plantation! Lineingen grinned. Act to God, my eye. Anyway, I'm not an old woman. I'm not gonna run from it just because an elemental is on the way. And I don't think I'm the kind of fathead who tries to fend off lightning with his fists, either. I use my intelligence, old man. With me, the brain isn't a second blind gut. I know what it's there for. When I began this model farm and plantation three years ago, I took into account all that could conceivably happen to it. Now, I'm ready for anything and everything, including your ants. The Brazilian rose heavily to his feet. I've done my best, he gasped. Your obstinacy endangers not only yourself, but the lives of your 400 workers. You don't know these ants. Leinengen accompanied him down to the river, where the government launch was moored. The vessel cast off. As it moved downstream, the exclamation mark neared the rail and began waving its arms frantically. Long after the launch had disappeared around the bend, Linogen thought he could still hear that dimming, imploring voice. You don't know them. I tell you, you don't know them. But the reported enemy was by no means unfamiliar to the planter. Before he started work on his settlement, he had lived long enough in the country to see for himself the fearful devastations sometimes wrought by these ravenous insects in their campaigns for food. But since then, he had planned measures of defense accordingly. These, he was convinced, were in every way adequate to withstand the approaching peril. Moreover, during his three years as a planter, Linogen had met and defeated drought, flood, plague, and other acts of God which had come against him. Unlike his fellow settlers in the district, who had made little or no resistance. This unbroken success he attributed solely to the observance of his lifelong motto, the human brain needs only to become fully aware of its powers to conquer even the elements. <laughs>
dullards reeled senselessly and aimlessly into the abyss. Cranks, however brilliant, lost their heads when circumstances suddenly altered or accelerated and ran into stone walls. Sluggards drifted with the current until they were caught in whirlpools and dragged under. But such disasters, Lineengine contended, merely strengthened his argument that intelligence, directed right, invariably makes man a master of his fate. Yes, Lineengine had always known how to grapple with life. Even here, in this Brazilian wilderness, his brain had triumphed over every difficulty and danger it had so far encountered. First, he had vanquished primal forces by cunning and organization. Then he had enlisted the resources of modern science to increase miraculously the yield of his plantation. And now, he was sure he would prove more than a match for the irresistible ants. That same evening, however, Leiningen assembled his workers. He had no intention of waiting until the news reached their ears from other sources. Most of them had been born in the district. The cry, the ants are coming, was to them an imperative signal for instant, panic-stricken flight, a spring for life itself. But so great was the Indians' trust in Leiningen, in Leiningen's word, and in Leiningen's wisdom, that they received his curt tidings and his orders for the imminent struggle, with the calmness with which they were given. They waited, unafraid, alert, as if for the beginning of a new game or hunt which he had just described to them. The ants were indeed mighty, but not so mighty as the boss. Let them come. They came at noon, the second day. Their approach was announced by the wild unrest of the horses, scarcely controllable now in either stall or under rider, scenting from afar a vapor instinct with horror. It was announced by a stampede of animals, timid and savage, hurtling past each other, jaguars and pumas flashing by nimble stags of the pampas, bulky tapers, no longer hunters, themselves hunted, outpacing fleet kinkajous, maddened herds of cattle, heads lowered, nostrils snorting, rushing through tribes of loping monkeys, chattering in a dimension of terror, then followed the creeping and springing denizens of bush and steppe, big and little rodents, snakes and lizards. Pell-mell, the rabble swarmed down the hill to the plantation, scattered right and left before the barrier of the water-filled ditch, then sped onwards to the river, where, again hindered, they fled along its bank out of sight. This water-filled ditch was one of the defense measures which Leiningen had long since prepared against the advent of the ants. It encompassed three sides of the plantation, like a huge horseshoe, twelve feet across, but not very deep. When dry, it could hardly be described as an obstacle to either man or beast. But the ends of the horseshoe ran into the river, which formed the northern boundary and fourth side of the plantation. And at the end, near the house, and the outbuildings in the middle of the plantation, Leinigen had constructed a dam by means of which water from the river could be diverted into the ditch. So now, by opening the dam, he was able to fling an imposing girdle of water, a huge quadrilateral with the river as its base, completely around the plantation, like the moat encircling a medieval city. 
unless the ants were clever enough to build rafts. They had no hope of reaching the plantation, Blindingen concluded. The twelve-foot water ditch seemed to afford, in itself, all the security needed. But while awaiting the arrival of the ants, Blindingen made a further improvement. The western section of the ditch ran along the edge of a tamarind wood, and the branches of some great trees reached over the water. Blindingen now had them locked, so that ants could not descend from them within the moat. The women and children, then the herds of cattle, were escorted by peons and rafts over the river to remain on the other side in absolute safety until the plunderers had departed. Leinengen gave this instruction not because he believed that the non-combatants were in any danger, but in order to avoid hampering the efficiency of the defenders. Critical situations first become crises, he explained to his men, when oxen or women get excited. Finally, he made a careful inspection of the inner moat, a smaller ditch lined with concrete, which extended around the hill, on which stood the ranch house, barns, stables, and other buildings. Into this concrete ditch emptied the inflow pipes for three great petrol tanks. If, by some miracle, the ants managed to cross the water and reach the plantation, this rampart of petrol would be an absolutely impassable protection for the besieged and their dwellings and stop. Such, at least, was Leinengen's opinion. He stationed his men at irregular distances along the water ditch, the first line of defense. Then he lay down in his hammock and puffed drowsily away at his pipe, until a peon came with the report that the ants had been observed far away in the south. Leinengen mounted his horse, which at the feel of its master seemed to forget its uneasiness, and rode leisurely in the direction of the threatening offensive. The southern stretch of ditch, the upper side of the quadrilateral, was nearly three miles long. From its center, one could survey the entire countryside. This was destined to be the scene of the outbreak of war between Leinogen's brain and twenty square miles of life-destroying ants. It was a sight one could never forget. Over the range of hills, as far as I could see, crept a darkening hem, ever longer and broader, until the shadows spread across the slope from east to west, then downwards, downwards, uncannily swift, and all the green herbage of that wide vista was being mown as by a giant sickle, leaving only the vast moving shadow, extending, deepening, and moving rapidly nearer. When Leinengen's men, behind their barrier of water, perceived the approach of the long-expected foe, they gave vent to their suspense and screams and imprecations. But as the distance began to lessen between the sons of hell and the water ditch, they relapsed into silence. Before the advance of that awe-inspiring throng, their belief in the powers of the boss began to steadily dwindle. Even Leinogen himself, who had ridden up just in time to restore their loss of heart by a display of unshakable calm, even he could not free himself from a qualm of malaise. Yonder were thousands of millions of voracious jaws bearing down upon him, and only a suddenly insignificant narrow ditch lay between him and his men and being gnawed to the bones before you can spit three times. Hadn't his brain for once taken on more than it could manage? 
the blighters decided to rush the ditch, fill it to the brim with their corpses, there'd still be more than enough to destroy every trace of that cranium of his. The planter's chin jutted. They hadn't got him yet, but he'd see to it they never would. While he could think at all, he'd flout both death and the devil. The hostile army was approaching in perfect formation. No human battalions, however well-drilled, could ever hope to rival the precision of that advance. Along a front that moved forward as uniformly as a straight line, the ants drew nearer and nearer to the water ditch. Then, when they learned through their scouts the nature of the obstacle, the two outlying wings of the army detached themselves from the main body and marched down the western and eastern sides of the ditch. This surrounding maneuver took rather more than an hour to accomplish. No doubt the ants expected that at some point they would find a crossing. During this outflanking movement by the wings, the army on the center and southern front remained still. The besieged were therefore able to contemplate at their leisure the thumb-long, reddish-black, long-legged insects. Some of the Indians believed they could see, too, intent on them, the brilliant, cold eyes, and the razor-edged mandibles of this host of infinity. It is not easy for the average person to imagine that an animal, not to mention an insect, can think. But now, both the brain of Linogen and the brains of the Indians begin to stir with the unpleasant foreboding that inside every single one of that deluge of insects dwelt a thought. And that thought was, ditch or no ditch, we'll get to your flesh. Not until four o'clock did the wings reach the horseshoe ends of the ditch, only to find these ran into the great river. Through some kind of secret telegraphy, the report must then have flashed very swiftly indeed along the entire enemy line, and Linogen, riding no longer casually along his side of the ditch, noticed by energetic and widespread movements of troops that for some unknown reason, the news of the check had its greatest effect on the southern front, where the main army was massed. Perhaps the failure to find a way over the ditch was persuading the ants to withdraw from the plantation in search of spoils more easily attainable. An immense flood of ants, about a hundred yards in width, was pouring in a glimmering black cataract down the far slope of the ditch. Many thousands were already drowning in a sluggish creeping flow, but they were followed by troop after troop who clambered over their sinking comrades, and then themselves served as dying bridges to the reserves hurrying on in their rear. Shoals of ants were being carried away by the current into the middle of the ditch, where gradually they broke asunder, and then, exhausted by their struggles, vanished below the surface. Nevertheless, the wavering, floundering, hundred-yard front was remorselessly, if slowly advancing towards the besieged on the other bank. Leiningen had been wrong when he supposed the enemy would first have to fill the ditch with their bodies before they could cross. Instead, they merely needed to act as stepping stones as they swam and sank to the hordes ever pressing onwards from behind. Near Leiningen, a few mounted herdsmen awaited his orders. He sent one to the weir. The river must be dammed more strongly to increase the speed and power of the water coursing through the ditch. A second peon was dispatched to the outhouses to bring spades and petrol sprinklers. A third rode away to summon to the zone of the offensive all the men, except the observation posts on the nearby sections of the ditch, which were not yet actively threatened. The ants were getting across far more quickly than Linogen would have deemed possible, impelled by the mighty cascade behind them. They struggled nearer and nearer 
to the inner bank. The momentum of the attack was so great that neither the tardy flow of the stream nor its downward pull could exert its proper force, and into the gap left behind every submerging insect hastened forward a dozen more. When reinforcements reached Leiningen, the invaders were halfway over. The planter had to admit to himself that it was only by a stroke of luck for him that the ants were attempting the crossing on a relatively short front. Had they assaulted simultaneously along the entire length of the ditch, the outlook for the defenders would have been black indeed. Even as it was, it could hardly be described as rosy, though the planter seemed quite unaware that death in a gruesome form was drawing closer and closer. As the war between his brain and the act of God reached its climax, the very shadow of annihilation began to pale to Leiningen, who now felt like a champion in a new Olympic game, a gigantic and thrilling contest from which he was determined to emerge victor. Such indeed was his aura of confidence that the Indians forgot their stupefied fear of the peril only a yard or two away. Under the planter's supervision, they began fervidly digging up to the edge of the bank and throwing clods of earth and spadefuls of sand into the midst of the hostile fleet. The petrol sprinklers, hitherto used to destroy pests and blights on a plantation, were also brought into action. Streams of evil reeking oil now soared and fell over an enemy already in disorder through the bombardment of earth and sand. The ants responded to these vigorous and successful measures of defense by further developments of their offensive. Entire clumps of huddling insects began to roll down the opposite bank to the water. At the same time, Leinigen noticed that the ants were now attacking along an ever-widening front. As the numbers both of his men and his petrol sprinklers were severely limited, this rapid extension of the line of battle was becoming an overwhelming danger. To add to his difficulties, the very clods of earth they flung into that black floating carpet often whirled fragments toward the defender's side, and here and there, dark ribbons were already mounting the inner bank. True, whenever a man saw these, they could still be driven back into the water by spadefuls of earth or jets of petrol, but the file of defenders was too sparse and scattered to hold off at all points these landing parties. Though the peons toiled like madmen, their plight became momentarily more perilous. One man struck with his spade at an enemy clump, did not draw it back quickly enough from the water. In a trice, the wooden haft swarmed with upward scurrying insects. With a curse, he dropped the spade into the ditch. Too late, they were already on his body. They lost no time. Wherever they encountered bare flesh, they bit deeply. A few, bigger than the rest, carried in their hindquarters a sting which injected a burning and paralyzing venom. Screaming, frantic with pain, the peon danced and swirled like a dervish. Realizing that another such casualty, yes, perhaps this alone, might plunge his men into confusion and destroy their morale, Leiningen roared in a bellow louder than the yells of the victim. Into the petrol, idiot! Douse your paws in the petrol! The dervish ceased his pirouette as if transfixed, then tore off his shirt and plunged his arm the ants hanging to it up to the shoulder in one of the large open tins of petrol. But even then, the fierce mandibles did not slacken. Another peon had to help him squash and detach each separate insect. Distracted by the episode, some defenders had turned away from the ditch, and now, cries of fury, a thudding of spades, and a wild trampling to and fro showed that the ants had made full use of the interval, though luckily only a few had managed to get across. 
The men set to work again desperately with the barrage of earth in his hand. Meanwhile, an old Indian, who acted as a medicine man to the plantation workers, gave the bitten peon a drink he had prepared some hours before, which, he claimed, possessed the virtue of dissolving and weakening ants' venom. Leinigen surveyed his position, a dispassionate observer would have estimated the odds against him at a thousand to one, but then such an onlooker would have reckoned only by what he saw, the advance of myriad battalions of ants against the futile efforts of a few defenders, and not by the unseen activity that can go on in a man's brain, for Leinigen had not erred when he decided he would fight elemental with elemental. The water in the ditch was beginning to rise, the stronger damming of the river was making itself apparent. Visibly, the swiftness and power of the masses of water increased, swirling into quicker and quicker movement its living black surface, dispersing its pattern, carrying away more and more of it in the hastening current. Victory had been snatched from the very jaws of defeat. With a hysterical shout of joy, the peons feverishly intensified their bombardment of earth clods and sand. And now, the wide cataract down the opposite bank was thinning and ceasing as if the ants were becoming aware that they could not attain their aim. They were scurrying back up the slope to safety, and all the troops, so far hurled into the ditch, had been sacrificed in vain. Drowned and floundering insects eddied in thousands along the flow, while Indians running on the bank destroyed every swimmer that reached the side. Not until the ditch curved towards the east did the scattered ranks assemble again in a coherent mass, and now, exhausted, and half numb, they were in no condition to ascend the bank. Fusillades of clods drove them round the bend towards the mouth of the ditch, and then into the river, wherein they vanished without leaving a trace. The news ran swiftly along the entire chain of outposts, and soon a long scattered line of laughing men could be seen hastening along the ditch towards the scene of victory. For once they seemed to have lost all their native reserve, for it was in wild abandon now they celebrated the triumph, as if it were no longer thousands of millions of merciless, cold, and hungry eyes watching them from the opposite bank, watching and waiting. The sun sank behind the rim of the tamarind wood, and twilight deepened into night. It was not only hoped, but expected that the ants would remain quiet until dawn, but to defeat any forlorn attempt at a crossing, the flow of water through the ditch was powerfully increased by opening the dam still further. In spite of this impregnable barrier, Linogen was not yet altogether convinced that the ants would not venture another surprise attack. He ordered his men to camp along the bank overnight. He also detailed parties of them to patrol the ditch in two of his motor cars and ceaselessly illuminate the surface of the water with headlights and electric torches. After having taken all the precautions he deemed necessary, the farmer ate his supper with considerable appetite and went to bed. His slumbers were in no wise disturbed by the memory of the waiting, live, twenty square miles. Dawn found a thoroughly refreshed and active line engine riding along the edge of the ditch. The planter saw before him a motionless and unaltered throng of besiegers. He studied the wide belt of water between them and the plantation, and for a moment, almost regretted that the fight had ended so soon, and so simply, in the comforting, matter-of-fact light of morning, it seemed to him now that the ants hadn't the ghost of a chance to cross the ditch 
even if they plunged headlong into it, on all three fronts at once, the force of the now powerful current would inevitably sweep them away. He had got quite a thrill out of the fight. A pity it was already over. He rode along the eastern and southern sections of the ditch and found everything in order. He reached the western section, opposite the Tamarind Wood, and here, contrary to the other battlefronts, he found the enemy very busy indeed. The trunks and branches of the trees and the creepers of the lianas on the far bank of the ditch fairly swarmed with industrious insects, but instead of eating the leaves there and then, they were merely gnawing through the stalks so that a thick green shower fell steadily to the ground. No doubt, they were victualing columns sent out to obtain provender for the rest of the army. The discovery did not surprise Leiningen. He did not need to be told that ants are intelligent, that certain species even use others as milch cows, watchdogs, and slaves. He was well aware of their power of adaptation, their sense of discipline, their marvelous talent for organization. His belief that a foray to supply the army was in progress was strengthened when he saw the leaves that fell to the ground being dragged to the troops waiting outside the wood. Then, all at once, he realized the aim that reign of green was intended to serve. Each single leaf, pulled or pushed by dozens of toiling insects, was borne straight to the edge of the ditch. Even as Macbeth watched the approach of Burnham Wood in the hands of his enemies, Leiningen saw the tamarind wood move nearer and nearer in the mandibles of the ants. Unlike the face Scott, however, he did not lose his nerve. No witches had prophesied his doom, and if they had, he would have slept just as soundly. All the same, he was forced to admit to himself that the situation was now far more ominous than that of the day before. He had thought it impossible for the ants to build rafts for themselves. Well, here they were, coming in thousands, more than enough to bridge the ditch. Leaves after leaves rustled down the slope into the water, where the current drew them away from the bank and carried them into midstream, and every single leaf carried several ants. This time the farmer did not trust the alacrity of his messengers. He galloped away, leaning from his saddle and yelling orders as he rushed past outpost after outpost. Bring petrol pumps to the southwest front. Issue spades to every man along the line facing the wood. And arrived at the eastern and southern sections, he dispatched every man except the observation posts to the menaced west. Then, as he rode past the stretch where the ants had failed to cross the day before, he witnessed a brief but impressive scene. Down the slope of the distant hill, there came towards him a singular being, writhing rather than running, an animal-like blackened statue with a shapeless head and four quivering feet that knuckled under almost ceaselessly. When the creature reached the far bank of the ditch and collapsed opposite Leiningen, he recognized it as a pompous stag, covered over and over with hands. It had strayed near the zone of the army. As usual, they had attacked its eyes first. Blinded, it had reeled in the madness of hideous torment straight into the ranks of its persecutors. And now, the beast swayed to and fro in its death agony. With a shot from his rifle, Linogen put it out of its misery. Then he pulled out his watch. He hadn't a second to lose, but for life itself, he could not have denied his curiosity the satisfaction of knowing how long the ants would take, for personal reasons, so to speak. After six minutes, the white polished bones alone remained. 
That's how he himself would look before you came. Leningen spat once and put spurs to his horse. The sporting zest with which the excitement of the novel contest had inspired him the day before had now vanished. In its place was a cold and violent purpose. He would send these vermin back to the hell where they belonged. Somehow. Anyhow. Yes. But how was indeed the question. As things stood at present, it looked as if the devils would raise him and his men from the earth instead. He had underestimated the might of the enemy. He really would have to bestir himself if he hoped to outwit them. The biggest danger now, he decided, was the point where the western section of the ditch curved southwards. And arrived there, he found his worst expectations justified. The very power of the current had huddled the leaves and their crews of ants so close together at the bend that the bridge was almost ready. True, streams of petrol and clumps of earth still prevented a landing but the number of floating leaves was increasing ever more swiftly. It could not be long now before the stretch of water a mile in length was decked by a green pontoon over which the ants could rush in millions. Line engine galloped to the weir. The damming of the river was controlled by a wheel on its bank. The planter ordered the man at the wheel first to lower the water in the ditch, almost to vanishing point, next to wait a moment, then suddenly to let the river in again. This maneuver of lowering raising the surface, decreasing, then increasing the flow of water through the ditch was to be repeated over and over again until further notice. This tactic was at first successful. The water in the ditch sank, and with it the film of leaves. The green fleet nearly reached the bed. The troops on the far bank swarmed down the slope to it. Then a violent flow of water at the original depth raced through the ditch, overwhelming leaves and ants and sweeping them along. This intermittent, rapid flushing prevented just in time the almost completed fording of the ditch, but it also flung here and there squads of the enemy vanguard simultaneously up the inner bank. These seemed to know their duty only too well, and lost no time accomplishing it. The air rang with the curses of bitten Indians. They had removed their shirts and pants to detect the quicker the upwards hastening insects. When they saw one, they crushed it, Unfortunately, the onslaught was yet was only by skirmishers. Again and again, the water sank and rose, carrying leaves and drowned ants away with it. It lowered once more nearly to its bed, but this time the exhausted defenders waited in vain for the flush of destruction. Leinengen sensed disaster. Something must have gone wrong with the machinery of the dam. Then a sweating peon tore up to him. They're over! While the besieged were concentrating upon the defense of the stretch opposite the wood, the seemingly unaffected line beyond the wood had become the theater of decisive action. Here the defenders' front was sparse and scattered. Everyone who could be spared had hurried away to the south. Just as the man at the weir had lowered the water almost to the bed of the ditch, the ants in a wide front began another attempt at a direct crossing like that of the preceding day. Into the empty bed poured an irresistible throng. Rushing across the ditch, they attained the inner bank before the Indians fully grasped the situation. Their frantic screams dumbfounded the man at the wheel. Before he could direct the river anew into the safeguarding bed, he saw himself surrounded by raging ants. He ran like the others, ran for his life. When Leinogen heard this, he knew the plantation was doomed. He wasted no time bemoaning the inevitable. For as long as there was the slightest chance of success, he had stood his ground. And now, any further resistance 
was both useless and dangerous. He fired three revolver shots into the air, the prearranged signal for his men to retreat instantly within the inner moment. Then he rode towards the ranch house. There was therefore time enough to prepare the second line of defense against the advent of the ants. Of the three great petrol cisterns near the house, one had already been half-emptied by the constant withdrawals needed for the pumps during the fight at the water ditch. The remaining petrol in it was now drawn off through the underground pipes into the concrete trench which encircled the ranch house and its outbuildings. And there, drifting in twos and threes, Linogen's men reached him. Most of them were obviously trying to preserve an air of calm and indifference, belied, however, by their restless glances and knitted brows. One could see their belief in a favorable outcome of the struggle was already considerably shaken. The planter called his peons around him. Well, lads, he began. We've lost the first round, but we'll smash the beggars yet. Don't you worry. Anyone who thinks otherwise can draw his pay here and now. Push off. There are rafts enough to spare on the river and plenty of time to still reach him. Not a man stirred. Leinengen acknowledged his silent vote of confidence with a laugh that was a half grunt. That's the stuff, lads. Too bad if you miss the rest of the show, huh? Well, the fun won't start till morning. Once these bladders turn tail, there'll be plenty of work for everyone. Higher wages, all around. Now, run along, get you something to eat. You've earned it, all right? In the excitement of the fight, the greater part of the day had passed without the men once pausing to snatch a bite. Now that the ants were for the time being out of sight, and the wall of petrol gave a stronger feeling of security, hungry stomachs began to assert their claims. The bridges over the concrete ditch were removed. Here and there, solitary ants had reached the ditch they gazed at the petrol meditatively, then scurried back again. Apparently, they had little interest at the moment for what lay beyond the evil reeking barrier. The abundant spoils of the plantation were the main attraction. Soon the trees, shrubs, and beds for miles around were hulled with ants zealously gobbling the yield of long weary months of strenuous toil. As twilight began to fall, a cordon of ants marched around the petrol trench, but as yet made no move toward its brink. Leinenton posted sentries with headlights and electric torches, then withdrew to his office and began to reckon up his losses. He estimated these as large, but, in comparison with his bank balance, by no means unbearable. He worked out in some detail a scheme of intensive cultivation which would enable him, before very long, to more than compensate himself for the damage now being wrought to his crops. It was with a contented mind that he finally betook himself to bed where he slept deeply until dawn, undisturbed by any thought that next day little more might be left of him than a glistening skeleton. He rose with the sun and went out on the flat roof of his house. And a scene like one from Dante lay around him, for miles in every direction, there was nothing but a black, glittering multitude, a multitude of rested, sated, but nonetheless voracious ants. Yes, 
Look as far as one might, one could see nothing but that rustling black throng, except in the north, where the great river drew a boundary they could not hope to pass. But even the high stone breakwater, along the bank of the river, which Leiningen had built as a defense against the inundations, was, like the paths, the shorn trees and shrubs, the ground itself, black with ants. So their greed was not glutted in raising that vast plantation, not by a long chalk. They were all the more eager now on a rich and certain booty, four hundred men, numerous horses, and bursting granaries. At first it seemed that the petrol trench would serve its purpose. The besiegers sensed the peril of swimming it, and made no move to plunge blindly over its brink. Instead, they devised a better maneuver. They began to collect shreds of bark, twigs, and dried leaves, and dropped these into the petrol. Everything green, which could have been similarly used, had long since been eaten. After a time, though, a long procession could be seen bringing from the west the tamarind leaves used as rafts the day before. Since the petrol, unlike the water in the outer ditch, was perfectly still, the refuse stayed where it was thrown. It was several hours before the ants succeeded in covering an appreciable part of the surface. At length, however, they were ready to proceed to a direct attack. Their storm troops swarmed down the concrete side, scrambled over the supporting surface of twigs and leaves, and impelled these over the first few remaining streaks of open petrol until they reached the other side. Then they began to climb up this to make straight for the helpless garrison. During the entire offensive, the planter sat peacefully, watching them with interest, but not stirring a muscle. Moreover, he had ordered his men not to disturb in any way whatever the advancing horde. So they squatted listlessly along the bank of the ditch and waited for a sign from the boss. The petrol was now covered with ants. A few had climbed the inner concrete wall and were scurrying towards the defenders. Everyone back from the ditch! roared Leiningen. The men rushed away without the slightest idea of his plan. He stooped forward and cautiously dropped into the ditch a stone which split the floating carpet and its living freight to reveal a gleaming patch of petrol. A match spurted, sank down to the oily surface. Leiningen sprang back. In a flash, a towering rampart of fire encompassed the garrison. This spectacular and instant repulse threw the Indians into ecstasy. They applauded, yelled, and stamped. Had it not been for the awe in which they held the boss, they would infallibly have carried him shoulder high. It was some time before the petrol burned down to the bed of the ditch, and the wall of smoke and flame began to lower. The ants had retreated in a wide circle from the devastation, and innumerable charred fragments along the outer bank showed that the flames had spread from the holocaust in the ditch well into the ranks beyond, where they had wrought havoc far and wide. Yet the perseverance of the ants was by no means broken. Indeed, each setback seemed only to wet it. The concrete cooled, the flicker of the dying flames wavered and vanished. Petrol from the second tank poured into the trench, and the ants marched forward, anew to the attack. The foregoing scene repeated itself in every detail, except that on this occasion, less time was needed to bridge the ditch, for the petrol was now already filmed by a layer of ash. Once again, they withdrew. Once again, 
petrol flowed into the ditch. Would the creatures never learn that their self-sacrifice was utterly senseless? It really was senseless, wasn't it? Yes, of course it was senseless, provided the defenders had an unlimited supply of petrol. When Line Engine reached this stage of reasoning, he felt for the first time since the arrival of the ants that his confidence was deserting him. His skin began to creep. He loosened his collar. Once the devils were over the trench, there wasn't a chance in hell for him and his men. God, what a prospect. To be eaten alive like that. For the third time, the flames immolated the attacking troops and burned down to extinction. Yet the ants were coming on again as if nothing had happened. And meanwhile, Linogen had made a discovery that chilled him to the bone. Petrol was no longer flowing into the ditch. Something must be blocking the outflow pipe of the third and last sister. A snake or a dead rat? Whatever it was, the ants could be held off no longer, unless Petrol could by some method be led from the sister into the ditch. Then Linogen remembered that in an outhouse nearby were two old disused fire engines, spry as never before in their lives. The peons dragged them out of the shed, connected their pumps to the cistern, uncoiled, and laid the hose. They were just in time to aim a stream of petrol at a column of ants that had already crossed and drive them back down the incline into the ditch. Once more, an oily girdle surrounded the garrison. Once more, it was possible to hold the position for the moment. It was obvious, however, that this last resource meant only the postponement of defeat and death. After a few of the peons fell on their knees and began to pray, others, shrieking insanely, fired their revolvers at the black, advancing masses, as if they felt their despair was pitiful enough to sway fate itself to mercy. At length, two of the men's nerves broke. Lineage and saw a naked Indian leap over the north side of the petrol trench, quickly followed by a second. They sprinted with incredible speed towards the river, but their fleetness did not save them. Long before they could attain the rapids, the enemy covered their bodies from head to foot. In the agony of their torment, both sprang blindly into the wide river where enemies no less sinister awaited them. Wild screams of mortal anguish informed the breathless onlookers, the crocodiles, and sword-toothed piranhas were no less ravenous than ants, and even nimbler in reaching their prey. In spite of this bloody warning, more and more men showed they were making up their minds to run the blockade. Anything even a fight midstream against alligators seemed better than powerlessly waiting for death to come and slowly consume their living bodies. Line Engine flogged his brain till it reeled. Was there nothing on earth could sweep this devil's spawn back into the hell from which it came? Then, out of the inferno of his bewilderment, rose a terrifying inspiration. Yes, one hope remained, and one alone. It might be possible to dam the Great River completely so that its waters would fill not only the water ditch, but overflow into the entire gigantic saucer of land in which lay the plantation. The far bank of the river was too high for the waters to escape that way. The stone breakwater ran between the river and the plantation. Its only gaps occurred where the horseshoe ends of the water ditch passed into the river, so its waters would not only be forced to inundate into the plantation, they would also be held there by the breakwater until they rose to its own high level. In half an hour, perhaps even earlier, the plantation and its hostile army of occupation would be flooded. The ranch house and outbuildings stood upon rising ground. Their foundations were higher than the breakwater, so the flood would not reach them. And any remaining ants trying to ascend the slope could be repulsed by petrol. 
It was possible, yes, if one could only get to the dam. A distance of nearly two miles lay between the ranch house and the weir, two miles advance. Those two peons had managed only a fifth of that distance at the cost of their lives. Was there an Indian daring after that to run the gauntlet five times as far? Hardly likely, and if there were, his prospect of getting back was almost nil. No, there was only one thing for it. He'd have to make the attempt himself. He might just as well be running as sitting still anyway when the ants finally got him. Besides, there was a bit of chance. Perhaps the ants weren't so almighty after all. Perhaps he had allowed the mass suggestion of that evil black throng to hypnotize him, just as a snake fascinates and overpowers. The ants were building their bridges. Line Engine got up on a chair. Hey, lads, listen to me, he cried. Slowly and listlessly, from all sides of the trench, the men began to shuffle towards him, the apathy of death already stamped on their faces. Listen, lads, he shouted. You're frightened of those beggars, but you're a damn sight more frightened of me. And I'm proud of you. There's still a chance to save our lives by flooding the plantation from the river. Now, one of you might manage to get as far as the weir, but they never come back. Well, I'm not going to let you try it. If I did, it'd be worse than one of those hands. No, I called the tune. No, I'm going to pay the piper. The moment I'm over the ditch, set fire to the petrol. I'll allow time for the flood to do the trick. Then, all you have to do is wait here all snug. Quiet till I'm back. Yes, I'm coming back. Trust me. He grinned. When I've finished my slimming cure. He pulled on high leather boots, drew heavy gauntlets over his hands, and stuffed the spaces between breeches and boots gauntlets and arms, shirt and neck, with rags soaked in petrol. With close-fitting mosquito goggles, he shielded his eyes, knowing too well the ants' dodge of first robbing their victim of sight. Finally, he plugged his nostrils and ears with cotton wool and let the peons drench his clothes with petrol. He was about to set off when the old Indian medicine man came up to him. He had a wondrous salve, he said, prepared from a species of chafer whose odor was intolerable to ants. Yes, this odor protected these chafers from the attacks of even the most murderous ants. The Indian smeared the boss's boots, his gauntlets, and his face over and over with the extract. Lineingen then remembered the paralyzing effects of ants' venom, and the Indian gave him a gourd full of the medicine he had administered to the bitten peon at the water ditch. The planter drank it down without noticing its bitter taste. His mind was already at the weir. He started off towards the northwest corner of the trench. With a bound, he was over. And among the ants, The beleaguered garrison had no opportunity to watch Line Engine's race against death. The ants were climbing the inner bank again. The lurid ring of petrol blazed aloft. For the fourth time that day, the reflection from the fire shone on the sweating faces of the imprisoned men and on the reddish-black cuirasses of their oppressors. 
the red and blue, dark-edged flames leaped vividly now. Celebrating what? The funeral pyre of the 400? Or of the hosts of destruction? Engine ran. He ran in long, equal strides, with only one thought, one sensation in his being. He must get through. He dodged all trees and shrubs, except for the split seconds his souls touched the ground. The ants should have no opportunity to alight on him. That they would get to him soon, despite the salve on his boots, the petrol on his clothes, he realized only too well. But he knew even more surely that he must, and that he would, get to the rear. Apparently the salve was some use after all. Not until he had reached halfway did he feel the ants under his clothes, and a few on his face. Mechanically, in his stride, he struck at them, scarcely conscious of their bites. He saw that he was drawing appreciably nearer the weir. The distance grew less and less, sank to five hundred, three, two, one hundred yards. Then he was at the weir, and gripping the ant-hulled wheel, Hardly had he seized it when a horde of infuriated ants flowed over his hands, arms, and shoulders. He started the wheel. Before it turned once on its axis, the swarm covered his face. Line engine strained like a madman. His lips pressed tight. If he opened them to draw a breath, he turned and turned. Slowly the dam lowered until it reached the bed of the river. Already the water was overflowing the ditch. Another minute, and the river was pouring through the nearby gap in the breakwater. The flooding the plantation had begun. Line engine let go of the wheel. Now, for the first time, he realized he was coated from head to foot with a layer of ants. In spite of the petrol, his clothes were full of them. Several had got to his body or were clinging to his face. Now that he had completed his task, he felt the smart raging over his flesh from the bites of song and piercing insects. Frantic with pain, he almost plunged into the river to be ripped and slashed to shreds by piranhas? Already he was running the return journey, knocking ants from his gloves and jacket, brushing them from his bloodied face, squashing them to death under his clothes. One of the creatures bit him just below the rim of his goggles. He managed to tear it away, but the agony of the bite and its etching acid drilled into the eye nerves. He saw now, through circles of fire, into a milky mist. Then he ran for a time, almost blinded, knowing that if he once tripped, fell. The old Indian's brew didn't seem much good. He weakened the poison a bit, but didn't get rid of it. His heart pounded as if it would burst. Blood roared in his ears. A giant's fist battered his lungs. Then he could see again, but the burning girdle of petrol appeared infinitely far away. He could not last half that distance. Swift changing pictures flashed through his head, episodes in his life, while in another part of his brain, cool and impartial onlooker, Informed this ant blur, gasper, exhausted bundle named Line Engine, that such a rushing panorama of scenes from one's past is seen only in the moment before death. A stone in the path, too weak to avoid it. The planter stumbled and collapsed. He tried to rise. He must be pinned under a rock. It was impossible. The slightest movement was impossible. Then all at once he saw starkly clear and huge and right before his eyes, furred with ants, towering and swaying in its death agony, 
the pompous stag, in six minutes, nod to the bones. God, he couldn't die like that. And something outside him seemed to drag him to his feet. He tottered. He began to stagger forward again. Through the blazing ring, hurtled an apparition, which, as soon as it reached the ground on the other side, fell full length and did not move. Leiningen, at the moment he made that leap through the flames, lost consciousness for the first time in his life. As he lay there, with glazing eyes and lacerated face, he appeared a man returned from the grave. The peons rushed to him, stripped off his clothes, tore away the ants from a body that seemed almost one open wound. In some places, the bones were showing. They carried him to the ranch house. As the curtain of flames lowered, one could see in place of the illimitable host of ants an extensive vista of water. The thwarted river had swept over the plantation, carrying with it the entire army. The water had collected and mounted in the great saucer, while the ants had in vain attempted to reach the hill on which stood the ranch house. The girdle of flames held them back, and so imprisoned between water and fire, they had been delivered into the annihilation that was their god. And near the farther mouth of the water ditch, where the stone mole had its second gap, the ocean swept the lost battalions into the river to vanish forever. The ring of fire dwindled as the water mounted to the petrol trench and quenched the dimming flames. The inundation rose higher and higher because its outflow was impeded by the timber and underbrush it had carried along with it. Its surface required some time to reach the top of the high stone breakwater and discharge over the rest of the shattered army. It swelled over ants' stippled shrubs and brushes until it washed against the foot of the knoll, wherein the besieged had taken refuge. For a while, an alluvium of ants tried again and again to attain this dry land, only to be repulsed by streams of petrol back into the merciless flood. Leinogen lay on his bed, his body swathed from head to foot in bandages. With fomentations and salves, they had managed to stop the bleeding and had dressed his many wounds. Now they thronged around him, one question in every face. Would he recover? He won't die, said the old man who had bandaged him, if he doesn't want to. Planter opened his eyes. Everything in order? He asked. They're gone, said his nurse. To hell. He held out to his boss a gourd of the powerful sleeping draft. Leinenden gulped it down. I told you I'd come back, he murmured. <laughs> Even if I am a bit streamlined, he grinned and shut his eyes. He slept.